Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to a new episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid's Survive and Thrive series. In this podcast, Dr. Blake Williamson invites Drs. John Berdahl and Robert Weinstock to share insights into conducting clinical research in a private practice setting and how one can get started in research outside of academia. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Survive and Thrive podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Blake Williamson. And I am so pumped to be here with uh, two mentors and, and, and even friends of mine now, uh, John Bredahl from South Dakota and Robert J. Weinstock from uh, the state of Florida. Um, and these are two people that uh, need no introduction. Everyone knows them. And they're two people that I count on quite a bit um, when I'm kind of start trying to forecast, um, you know, where my career is uh, and where I want it to be 10 years from now. Because um, they have a little head start on me, and uh, and they always have such good advice. Given that survive and thrive is all about um, sort of mentorship and, and sort of the next generation and coaching them through with helpful insights and, and pearls, um, I thought I couldn't think of two better people to have on. So thank you both for for joining me. And the topic of the conversation uh, is all about the idea of research. You know, I've heard you both talk about in the past that there are two elements of private practice that typically people who, you know, people who go to a fellowship in, in an academic center may not think are, are available in private settings. And that is a fellowship, a private practice fellowship, uh, and then also the ability to do research. So a lot of people go into uh, fellowships at academic institutions uh, and perhaps take academic positions because they really like the idea of uh, clinical research. Um, and, you know, what I've learned from you guys uh, is that you can you can actually do research in the private setting. And in fact, you can do it very efficiently on a wide scale and be a part of studies that are clinically meaningful. Um, and so I thought that we would just sort of talk about that today. Um, you know, what got you into it uh, and just give us some advice for people who are thinking about private practice, but want to still have a research piece. Maybe we can kind of go into that uh, throughout this podcast. So thank you so much. Uh, John, maybe I'll start with you. Um, so uh, just a little bit, tell us a little bit about, you know, why you uh, are interested in doing research. I mean, you're a very busy surgeon. You have a busy fellowship program. You also have a, a you know, a family that you like to hang out with. What's the point of adding uh, a research arm to what you do? Yeah, so I think it's really about understanding who I am and what drives me. And what drives me is the trust that is placed in me. And, and I feel like the profession has placed some trust, uh, you know, in me in a number of ways, in addition to our families and our partners, et cetera. But really at my core, I'm an academic. I, I'm curious. 
I uh, like to define problems, try and answer them and see if we can't make meaningful contributions to our profession. And, and I think that sometimes there is an artificial divide between academia and um, private practice or an academic private practice. And I think that, you know, Dick Lindstrom probably uh, is the one who taught me that, that you can still make meaningful academic contributions in private practice. Now, it, don't do it because it might be profitable. Um, it can be, it also can be a loss. Do it because that's something that you're driven by. And, I, and so I was lucky enough to join my partner, Vance Thompson, who had already done a number of FDA monitored clinical trials. And so we already had an infrastructure in place. So it was pretty easy for me to step into, although I was naturally academic. And, and, and I would say that there's three kinds of research that kind of happen in a private practice out of the four. The three that happen well in private practice and can happen well in academia are clinical trials, FDA monitored clinical trials, where there's a new technology or drug that people are asking us to study according to protocol for an FDA approval. There's um, things that you look at that you've done retrospectively, and maybe you have a high volume. And so MIGS and iStent was one that we spent a lot of time on in our practice. And then the other one is the ideas that you have yourself. You know, So Equinox for us with trying to treat glaucoma in a new way. And we did, we've done cadaver work here. Um, we've done you know, kind of basic science or some imaging. And then the part that isn't done well in private practice or very rarely, I'm not aware of where it's done well is basic science. And that's where we need the universities to, to really do some of that drug discovery, fundamental genetic discovery kind of work. And, you know, I, I think that oftentimes we create um, artificial uh, conflicts. There doesn't need to be a conflict between private practice and academia. We've all got the same goals and some places are better equipped to do some parts, other places better equipped to do other parts like academia is with basic science, but we all have the same goal to advance our beloved profession. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I think that, you know, the, the curiosity piece is, is another thing that sort of motivates me. The, the other thing that motivates me is you know, looking back on my career, I try to forecast not just 10 years, but maybe 35 years from now, you know, what will I, what will I wish I did more of? And I love to ask docs that are in their late sixties, early seventies, Hey man, what do you wish you did more of? And of course, the number one thing is spend more time with family, uh, but that's a separate podcast. Uh, but I have had quite a few say, you know, I wish I would have contributed more meaningfully within my field. I just kind of felt, felt like I showed up and went to work and did a great job and slogged through surgeries. And that was kind of it. Um, and that's important. That's really important. Um, but, you know, I wish I had done more for the field as a whole. And I look at that, you know, as a way that maybe I could maybe I can contribute more just beyond seeing patients myself. And when I got to our practice like you, you know, I had a, I had a mentor, my dad who had been a part of a lot of studies. And I hear him talk about, you know, old ICL studies and going to to Russia with, with Fedorov and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, that's so cool that he could have been a part of that. Rob, I wonder you know, you're in a practice with your dad and, and I know that you guys, you know, had done studies in the past, you know, is that something that you had to kind of revive and maybe talk about how, you know, why you kind of added it to, to, to what you guys do at a high level? Yeah. I mean, John, John summed it up real well early on talking about, 
motivation and passion and what drives it. And it can't be something just to check a box. It has to be something that truly comes from within and something you're truly passionate about, just like anything else. Because if you're not, it's not going to be successful. And our process was a little more organic. I mean, I did join a busy practice. I was very fortunate, much like both of us, to have a footprint to drop into. But research wasn't a big component. But I think the research really stemmed from me, like John, having a passion for innovation and making things better and wanting things to be better and not just accepting the status quo. So, you know, early on, I adopted small incision FACO, bimanual FACO. Um, I adopted new technology like the crystal lens when it first came out and, and kind of really worked on figuring how, how to good, get good outcomes with that. Um, LASIK was just taking off and we were using microkeratomes at the side. So we were worried about flap thickness and outcomes with different types of keratomes. Um, and then that parlayed into intraoperative aberometry and heads up 3D surgery. And I was just naturally driven to new technology and anything that I thought, really thought was going to make better outcomes for my patients. And when you start doing that and you start finding interests of your own in things, then you start to collect data and collecting data is a huge part of it. And a lot of people get too busy to collect their data and go back and look at it and do retrospective analysis of it, like John said. So like like was mentioned, there's a lot of different avenues you can take. Probably the easiest, simplest thing is to take a technique that you do, something that's unique, that you, works in your hands. If it works in your hands, it's probably going to work in other people's hands. Collect your data and write up, you know, that would be considered a phase four study, something that's already passed FDA approval, a technology like a multifocal IOL or a MIGS device or your technique with MIGS or when you do it or how you do it. And you collect the data and you submit it to a journal, a peer-reviewed journal. That's research. That's a great, easy way to get started. Um, you can you, usually you need an IRB, but if it's a retrospective study, there's lots of IRBs that's very easy to get that we can provide resources to. And you can really do it yourself with not a lot of effort. And once you start to get published in that way, then companies start to look at you as a source for doing research. And they start coming to you with what John was mentioning typically phase three studies where it's an FDA study, it's something that's not approved and they need really good clinicians, which are often in the private setting because there's high volume in the private setting and there's a lot of control of your environment in the private setting and you can generate the numbers that they need. And those studies are very great. Um, and there is, none of it's about financial. I just want to take that right off the table. There are plenty of doctors out there that supplement their income with research, but that should never be the motivating factor. It should be on interest and wanting to give back and, and passion for the subject matter. Otherwise, it's not going to be successful. So um, we started organically. And after I started having more companies come to me asking me to do research projects, I got so busy with it that I needed help. And I recruited a, a, a research expert who was in another field altogether and brought her in and and many of you have met her renee vondurant who's amazing and she took a huge burden off my plate and would go to the meetings with me go to ao go to Asterisk, go to millennial i or whatever meeting it was and she would be the one that would really after introductions interface with the research teams and the r d 
teams in these companies, in the big companies and the small companies, and really laid the groundwork and then really took a lot off my plate so I could handle more studies. So that was kind of an evolution. But now I'm very selective. I'm very selective of things that are truly interested to me, interesting to me, things that I think are going to contribute to other surgeons having success and other patients doing well. And um, it's really become a really dynamic part of fun part of the practice. And let me tell you, just like you mentioned about family and what you wish you do, you have to make practice fun, you, you know, and whatever. And that may just be going to work and seeing patients, you might enjoy that more than anything. But some people like the research component and the data component and the writing component. And um, you should follow your dreams and passions if it's something you're passionate about and start simple and just kind of build it. It just doesn't happen overnight. I remember, uh, you know, I remember talking to you about like, God, man, you're so busy going to meetings and why will you still do the occasional dinner talk or something like that? And I've heard you talk about how, uh, man, it just breaks up the monotony. You know, it keeps it fun. It keeps it fresh. I get to meet people. Uh, is, is, is having a research sort of presence kind of part of that? Just something else to keep your, you know, to, to, to think about other than, you know, just doing cataract surgery all day? It is. It is. And it's also an additional challenge. Keeps your mind fresh, you know, and it keeps you focusing on different things and keeps you really motivated. It also engages your team. It's very, we're very proud of what we do. And I think our team is very proud. And I know John's team is proud as well of what they contribute. And they like to see that you're really, you know, really gives them a passion and a reason for being at work and showing up and coming in and working hard every day because they realize you're trying to make a difference. And when your team sees that, they follow suit. They work extra hard. They want to be part of the process. And let me tell you, we've gotten med students. We've gotten residents. We've gotten fellow, and John's an expert at this as well. I mean, we've helped other surgeons in their careers. And there's a great factor of giving back and seeing other people become successful, other surgeons, um, by having this component of our practice. John, you've, you've done so many amazing research projects. Um, how do you pick and choose between what to spend your time on? Because time is so limited. The ones that I can't quit thinking about when I wake up, what, what pops into my mind when I'm in the shower, are, and, and it's in, if it's a persistent itch, then I got to scratch it. And it is a fabulous way to distribute opportunity to a medical student, like you mentioned, Rob, to a fellow, um, you know, to the optometrist that you work with or collaborate with colleagues around the country. And, um, and you know, depending on the type of study, you can distribute that. You can have a medical student working on an important study and you provide some oversight. And, and then they end up making a, a really meaningful contribution. We just did one that I'm excited about. It's, you know, we do a lot of presbyopic IOLs and there's very little about LASIK or PRK enhancements after presbyopic IOLs out there. And we found that LASIK enhancements uh, are considerably more predictable than PRK enhancements after IOLs. And, um, we were a little surprised by that. Um, in his big study, 800 patients, the, the students did all the work. I had had a couple of PRKs that didn't do well. And I think that it's coinciding with what we're learning about the epithelium, that the epithelium's a bit uh, thicker, more irregular, and we're putting together answers. And you know, the other prior LASIK versus PRK studies are done in young people who have a more you know, uniform epithelium. And so it was a, a fun example 
of a study to do. And I'd, I'd add another thing that's a benefit of it is that our patients get access to technologies that they wouldn't have gotten access to otherwise a lot of times for one of two reasons. One is the technology just might not be FDA approved and, and isn't gonna be for five years, but it's a good technology that they could have benefited from, or they wouldn't have been able to afford it in the case of refractive surgery or a presbyopic IOL that they could now potentially get uh, for free or even get paid to be in a study. And that has enduring uh, repercussions, both on the good and on the negative. If you choose negative poorly about a technology that you thought might be good, but ultimately had a problem, you know, in your community, you're, you're going to be responsible for that. So you got to be really judicious. But the second part can be really great. We were in cross-linking trials 10 years ago. My first year in practice, I did 50 PKPs. Now we struggle as a practice to get 10. And that's good because we've drained the bathtub of all of these keratoconds that would ultimately have progressed to um, penetrating keratoplasty. And we got ahead of the curve on that. And so there is um, so much good that can come from research and it is a lasting good. It becomes durable and nobody's ever gonna take away the papers that you've contributed and the knowledge that you've contributed to our profession. Yeah, John, one thing that, that Rob said that um, is super critical, and I want to ask you when, you, when when you know that you need this, is the idea of the research coordinator. You know, if anybody's in this podcast and is thinking, how do I get started with research? I'm going to tell you how you get started. It, it's, it's pretty, I would think you guys would agree, doing some IITs, investigator-initiated trials, is usually the easiest thing. If you do, uh, you know, several MIGS devices or several new lenses and, you know, you feel like you're getting good results and you can track them well, usually IIT is something you can get published, certainly, uh, and that's in the peer-reviewed the, the peer reviewed data. Um, also, you know, just going to the trades, if you have success with a new technology, you know, usually just sharing your, your, your research is a good way to do it. And I've done a lot of that and I've done some post-market stuff. And the way we do it at my practice is we just do one study at a time because I don't have a big research wing. But John, I want to know, when do I know it's time for me to add that coordinator and how do I do it? Because my concern that I'll share is that, you know, do I have enough studies to fund this, this, this full-time employee to do it? You know, and, and what if we start off the gate with two or three studies, but then we don't get one for a year? How am I going to pay this person? So, so can, it, can you walk me through for that person that's out there listening, thinking, you know, I've done a few small things, but I'm really kind of take, ready to take it to the next level. Um, you know, how do, I, how do I find a coordinator? What qualities do they have to have? Can it be a technician or do they really have to have gone to school for being, you know, doing a research coordinator? Um, all those things. Yeah, great, great question. I think that the simple answer is the moment you feel burdened by doing the work of the research is the moment that you should hire somebody else to do that. So um, the, the money will the money work itself out. And, you know, for most people that have a successful private practice, you know, a reality is, is that generally speaking, um, in the private sector, we do a little bit better in the academic center than the academics do. And God bless them. And one of my, just as a quick sidelight, one of my biggest for our profession is that academia um, needs to retain the great people. 
because we need the people that brought the best out of us and, and to be in academia to help bring the best out of the next generation. And so I hope that we can maintain the best clinicians, researchers, doctors in academia for those reasons. But one of the things that I think about it is, is that I, one, I love research and two, I feel like I have an obligation to our profession. And if it means that I make a little bit less, but make some more contributions, that's okay. Especially in a private practice setting, it's not just about, you know, optimizing the profits. And, and so the moment that you say, I'm interested in this, but I feel burdened to do it and I'm spinning my wheels, or I actually am not going to spend my time doing it this evening because I am going to be a good dad or a loving husband, is the time to hire somebody. And will, there, will that have a return on investment? Probably. But if it doesn't, it's going to be okay. And you're going to like your life better and you're going to make more contributions. And at the end, like you talked about, Blake, you'll feel like you did do more of what you should have done, which was make more contributions. How do you find them? Um, I think that if you're looking at your first one, you probably are going to go with a technician, a technician that's really bright, that can think critically. And I would encourage you to think about it as an elevation within your practice, that we put great people you know, in research. And then when I joined Vance, uh, we had a one half-time research person. Now we have six full-time, just in Sioux Falls, and, and they help you know, keep the world spinning. Um, I, I bet that one of them was formally trained in research and the others you know, learned it as you go and they get together and they're at investigator meetings and they learn from each other. So, so that would be my advice, do it early. And then the last piece of advice I would say is that the trap surgeons fall into so frequently is that we think it's all about us. And man, and I've run clinical studies for our comp the companies we've started. The research coordinator is usually more important than the researcher to getting a study done. And so invest early, invest well, pick the right people and it'll turn out well. I could add to that. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with John. I mean, you've got to start slowly. And even like what you're doing, Blake, what you mentioned, one thing at a time is so important. And the concept of, um, you know, even just submitting papers or posters, that's research, you know, to asterisk or AO and getting those um, published and then speaking, then that can turn into a bigger paper that, that could then get published in a peer-reviewed journal and that's really how I started was just reporting my data and that's that's research and that's great and that's helpful to other surgeons and that kind of gets you on the map a little bit um, but then when it goes to the level that John is talking about with research coordinators and phase three clinical trials and a much more elaborate team and process a lot of it is on the research coordinators there's a lot of things that go into it a lot of details a lot of um, forms and regulatory things, tremendous about it. And there's even meetings that John and I have to drop into that we think are kind of a silly waste of time, but take an hour to sit down and do the inclusion and exclusion criteria to check boxes uh, with these companies and with the FDA that we did the right steps and we're doing the right things to make it legitimate research and complying with all the rules and regulations. So there is a lot of nitty gritty there that you, if you're gonna do a phase three trial, you have to be prepared for. And not only that, as much as it's on the research coordinator, 
if you aren't in the exam room, spending the time with the patient and talking to them and explaining them about the study, and that you think it's a good idea for the patient to enroll in the study and that they're a perfect candidate and why they should do it, it's unlikely that you could just walk out of a room and tell your research coordinator, hey, go talk to that person. I think they're a good candidate. It always speaks volumes when it comes from the surgeon and the doctor. They want your recommendation. And when they hear a doctor tell them that they're a good candidate for this study or this technology, that speaks more volumes than anything. And oftentimes, it's going to take you extra time in clinic. And, and I've made the mistake to committing to research projects where the inclusion and exclusion criteria are very onerous, and it's very challenging to enroll patients. And I can tell you one thing, if you're going to take on a research project, if you ever want to do one, you better make sure you do a good job on the first one because the word spreads very quickly through the small community of researchers within these companies. And you really want to make sure you do a good job. You recruit the patients that they want you to, and you do everything by the book, and you give them good data. Otherwise, the, the research project gets dragged out or you have to drop out of the study, and that never looks good. So you don't want to take on a study where you don't think that you're going to be able to recruit the patients. And if you don't have the time in clinic to talk to the patients about it and you're not passionate about it, then you're going to, the wind won't be in your sails to, to, to see it through completion. So there's a lot of components that, that go into making some of this more elaborate and robust um, uh, phase three research products, uh, projects and FDA trials uh, come to fruition and be successful in your practice. I was going to say, Rob, I have a question for you. What's your, what research contribution are you most proud of? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I'm really proud of a couple things. And I know in today's world, technology has moved on. But um, I'm really proud of the early work we did with the crystal lens that showed that there truly was an improvement in the functioning of an eye well more than just a monofocal eye well. I'm super proud of the early work and research that I contributed in, in intraoperative aberrometry, even though the biometry formula these days are you know, so good, you don't need it as much. But that was really a great undertaking and really helped move the needle in terms of refractive outcome. And probably the most is, is just showing that heads up surgery is just as viable as conventional microscope surgery in, in my in my research shows that it's safer, effective, prevents the surgeons from having back and neck injuries, elongating their careers, and providing just a better surgical platform for digital integration and information. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are those are some of the projects that I'm really proud of. And by the way, they happen to be, like you said, to be the things that I was most passionate about that spoke to me and things that I couldn't stop sleeping, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about and lost sleep over because I was just wanted to, I knew this was something that was viable and I just had to see it through the completion and share it with others. Um, but I want to, I want to hear from you. I, I know your glaucoma work has been tremendous and, uh, but I want I'm curious what you think is, is something that's meant the most to you. Yeah, I think that, um, well, by the way, those are great contributions, Rob, and we're all indebted to you for it. Um, I think that the thing that I'm the most proud of is CSF pressure in glaucoma, that glaucoma probably really is a two-pressure disease and that intracranial pressure is lower and that I think it's 
fundamental to our understanding of the second leading cause of blindness. Um, I'm pretty, pretty proud of astigmatism fix. I, I think that um, that helped a lot of people, uh, both patients and surgeons get out of a tricky situation. And, um, and I think that it changed the industry. I think that um, you know, J&J to its credit made a much more stable uh, intraocular lens. And so now we have better tools and better technologies for that. Um, and then, you know, some of the work that we're doing to try and show that we can change intraocular pressure non-invasively with Equinox, that's, that's pretty exciting and, and novel too. So those are the ones that I'm, I'm the most proud of. Um, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of them. It's, I ask the question, then I get asked it, and I feel like it's unfair. <laughs> but, um, but John, do you, John, do you feel John? Do you feel the uh, you feel the need to like have another hit? Um, like it's almost like a band that that like makes a great record. Like astigmatism fix is like a cultural touchstone within ophthalmology, right? Like it's like it's like it's just it's like a thing. It's like the Barrett formula. If you if you were Graham Barrett, I mean the Barrett formula. It was such a hit. Astigmatism fix is such a hit and so meaningful and relevant. Do you kind of feel the need? To, to, to find another one of those things, almost like a band that wants to make another great record, or is it more just organic and if it comes, it comes? Great question. I, um, I don't feel that I need to you know, have another one. I do feel like I wanna help somebody execute on theirs. So one of our fellows or um, the, the thing that I can't sleep about at night is somebody else's project that, um, that I might be able to help them turn into something that does become a touchstone. I, I, um, I think that I get probably more satisfaction from that than anything that I would come up with now is to have an influence on somebody that can contribute way more. I had my 13th year anniversary of being in practice. So I'm a mid-career surgeon now. And so I guess I'm, I'm getting old and looking to the new generation and wanting to help them. <laughs> Well, we only got a couple minutes here left. Maybe just kind of last comments. Uh, Rob, I'll start with you, and then John, maybe take us home on, on just how how people may want to get started. You know, what what kind of insights or pearls you know would you say for people who are listening to this and saying, you know, this may be something I want to do. Um, you know, um, where where do I start? What do I who do I call? What do I need to do? Yeah, I think that you know, I get asked by a lot of younger surgeons. And I see like such a great pipeline of amazing surgeons coming right now that are motivated. I, I don't know if it's just me, but I felt like there was a bit of a lull, but I feel like there is definitely the desire and the motivation of younger surgeons to get involved and contribute and to really embrace the interaction between industry and surgeons. And, and really this is just another arm or avenue of that, of that aspect of interfacing with industry because it takes the collaboration um, really to drive progress. Now, yes, you can take existing technology and you can report your studies and that's a great way to start. And you can even turn that into uh, peer review papers. And once you start doing that, it's gonna lead to other things and open doors because the industry will pay attention to that, that you are, have the wherewithal to report that and that you're interested in reporting and sharing your data. And then they will come with you to come to you with other projects and other things to work on. But it's most important for young surgeons to really 
find something that they're super interested in and really take a deep dive on it and really make it their their passion to 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 really bring it forward and to affect it like i mean when second lasers came out i got really interested in that i thought it was you know i know there's a, a lot of controversy as whether it's better or not in my hands i feel it's better and you know one of the projects i worked on was I'd use several platforms and then I got the Lensar platform, which has a different imaging system than the OCT imaging as Shineflute. Well, the fact that I had experience with the OCT imaging of say the LensX and the Victus was a stark contrast to the imaging system of the Lensar. So I had an interesting perspective on that because of my utilization of different technologies. And it, it became very obvious to me that the, the, the Shineflute imaging could pick up on things that the OCT couldn't. And that's what led to um, things like the capsular nubs for toric IOL alignment. That's what led to customized nuclear fragment patterns, just ideas that I had just by using things that I was using every day. And it's not like your question to John before about like, do I have something that I wanna do or have to do or make another hit? It's, it's not really like that. In reality, things just happen. You, you get excited about something or you notice something when you're working. And if you notice it and you think it's important, you should share it. You should share it with your colleagues. You should take a deep dive on it. And that will open tremendous doors for you. And my, my parting thoughts are in the same vein. You know, Rob said it. Be a good observer. You have your clinical laboratory every day and make observations. And then see if those observations can be backed up with a bit of scientific rigor and then share it. The second thing is doing research makes you a better doctor. It makes you um, more aware of what's going on. It helps your critical thinking on behalf of your patients. You also know the technologies that are coming down the pipeline and, and what's going to come. So I think that your, your patients benefit from that in every way. And then lastly, I would say if if you wonder if you should do it, give it a shot. Just do it. Write something up. I'll tell you, it's going to be more work than you think it's going to be. A peer-reviewed paper is going to be 50 hours worth of work. If it's a pretty straightforward thing, it's going to be at least 50 hours worth of work. But do it. And the next one will be a little less work and a little bit better. And... Um, and I think that, you know, look at where you have something unique to offer. You do have something unique to offer. Look where you do. My partner, Vance, you know, said to me when, when we were talking about listservs and chats, he said, John, if you can't say it better than everybody else, let somebody else say it. And the converse of that in research is you've got something that you've observed that nobody else has. Find a way to share that with us. Share it with me so that I can be a better dad for my patients. That's wonderful. I, I really appreciate you guys. I mean, there's so many people who are listening to this who are in research or in uh, academic programs right now in training, uh, maybe hadn't started residency yet or just getting started and are looking for, for useful insights and pearls about what to do. Um, and this has been invaluable. Um, love you guys so much. Uh, and thank you so much uh, for, for joining us on this episode of Survive and Thrive. Thank you for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid's Survive and Thrive series. And thank you to our guests, Drs. John Berdahl and Robert Weinstock, for joining the show.